Welcome to the Kennedy Beacon Podcast, where we come together weekly to discuss the topics covered by the writers of the Kennedy Beacon Substack and follow Robert F. Kennedy Jr.'s history-making run for president. This week's show is called The CIA, Crime and Chaos. I'm here with my co-hosts, Aaron Good and Nico House. Hey, guys. What's going on? What's going on? Hi, Francis. All right, our 10th show, guys, in the double digits now, officially. What you think about that? Uh, that would make us, you know, more consistent than about 99% of podcasters. So that's pretty good, you know. After about the first three, most people tend to die down. So I'm happy we made it this far. Me too. Yeah, I feel like, I feel like we've climbed the mountaintop, so it's a, the view is nice. <laughs> it's euphoric. All right, all kidding aside, today's show is very special. All our shows, of course, are special and fascinating. But today, in particular, we're talking with someone who has one of the most interesting stories I've ever heard, John Kiriakou. He is a former CIA officer turned whistleblower who in 2012 became the first CIA officer to be convicted and sent to prison for sharing classified information with a reporter. What was the topic of that intel? The CIA's torture program. Now, John's author of five books, including The Reluctant Spy, My Secret Life in the CIA's War on Terror and Doing Time Like a Spy, How the CIA Taught Me to Survive and Thrive in Prison. John, welcome to the show. Please tell me I didn't slaughter your last name. No, it's perfect. Thank you. Thanks for the invitation. This is going to be a lot of fun. Well, we're going to start with a clip from Aaron's podcast, American Exceptionalism, to set the tone for today's conversation. Um, I, I was talking to uh, Bob Kennedy Jr. the other day, and he told me a story that I thought was historically significant. And and Jeff Morley said that he had also heard this story. Uh but Bob said that on November 22nd, 63, his mom took him out of school early, of course. She went to the school, yeah. picked him up, and brought him home. And um, when he got out of the car, his dad was standing there with John McCone, the director of the CIA. Now, the Kennedys and the McCones were very, very close. And John McCone's wife had died a few months earlier of uh, breast cancer. He was very depressed, and the Kennedys sort of took him into their family. So they became very close friends, and Bob said that that every single day after work, John McCone would come to their house, and he would swim in their pool, and then they would have dinner, and then he would go home. So very, very personally close. Bob gets out of the car, and he walks past his father, and he hears his father say to McCone, tell me your people didn't do this. And McCone responded, I don't know who did this. He didn't say, no, my people didn't do this. He genuinely didn't know. And, you know, the yeah. more the more I don't want to believe that my own government would kill my own president. But the older I get and the more I learn, especially when it's based on primary source evidence. I have to conclude that elements of the CIA killed John Kennedy. I, I don't believe that it was a CIA policy, a CIA program to kill Kennedy. But I think that the evidence is ample enough to conclude that that Dulles and, you know, th there are a half a dozen or a dozen other old school 50s era CIA killers and operations people uh, that very well may have had something to do with it. 
Yeah. Oh man, John, that's a that's a wonderful story, and I tend to agree, right? I think that people need to understand that we maybe shouldn't conflate individuals um, acting rogue within the CIA uh, with like the entire organization of the CIA. In fact, I would say those individuals tend to use the the institutions of these uh, organizations as as cover. Um, and looking at your history, first of all, working for the CIA right out of grad school, uh, where you were recruited by one of your professors. By the way, we have that in common. I was actually recruited by um, a, a professor at UNC for Peace, War, and Defense. They were going to try to get me to go CIA. And I was like, mm, I'm good on that. <laughs> <laughs> so, so how do you get from being a dedicated American patriot with the agency uh, to being a different kind of American, telling the world about the corruption and criminal activity at the agency? I mean, the clip we just heard is of a man who was having a terrible, terrible realization. Um, so can you tell us uh, were there moments along the way that led you to speak out or was there a major event that was so horrible that you couldn't not speak out on it? You know, nobody's ever asked me that question before. Uh, and, and it's an important one for, for me, the change was very incremental. Um, I come from an immigrant family, um, an immigrant family that was so proud to be American that public service was instilled in me at a young age. And when I was in, in college, in grad school, I only considered public service. It never even occurred to me to do something in the private sector because I, I was raised to believe that, that we had to show how grateful we were to be in this country by giving back. And then when this opportunity presented itself, to tell you the truth, I, I wanted to see the world and uh, and I wanted to do something in government, and I had a degree in Middle Eastern studies already, and this just sounded perfect to me. Um, but I did see things from the very beginning that bothered me, and you know I just kind of chalked it up to my own inexperience. For example, I was just talking about this today on my own radio show. Um, I was. Uh, I was an Iraq analyst in the Office of Leadership Analysis uh, when I first started. And after being on the job for about nine months, Iraq invaded Kuwait. And uh, one of the old timers came up to me and said, I don't think you understand just how important this is. He said, it's not unusual for the countries we cover uh, to go to war. It's highly unusual for the countries we cover to go to war with us. And so, you know, on the morning of August 2nd, 1990, I remember it like it was yesterday. Here I am, 20, what, five years old, and I'm in the Oval Office briefing the president and the vice president in the United States. It was crazy. A couple of months later, um, the president had laid out this red line. The Iraqis have to withdraw from Kuwait, period. If they don't withdraw by, by X date, I think it was the, whatever, the 17th of February, uh, they're going to have us to deal with. And then what happened? The Iraqis began to withdraw. First, we saw it in satellite imagery, and then they announced that they were going to withdraw. And then we bombed them anyway. That's what, the, that's what the highway of death was all about. And a friend of mine, one of my coworkers came up to me, said, this is before we started bombing. He said, my God, we won. We won. They're, they're going to withdraw. And I said, no, man, they, we don't want them to withdraw. We want to blast them. 
You, John, did you know? So there was a big controversy specifically regarding the highway of death where Call of Duty actually reenacted it. Ooh. But they a vid- said a that video it was game. Russia. Yeah, they said it was Russia who conducted those strikes and not America. Yeah, they framed oh the entire. Oh my god! No, I yeah, did not know that. Yeah, it was a big. That. It was a very big deal. That's um, sick. that was the moment mm-hmm. I stopped playing Call of Duty. Actually, because like I, before, I knew Call of Duty was basically propaganda, but that particular incident, I was like, this looks really familiar. And then I looked it up, and it was a huge controversy. Uh, Francis, you had something you want to ask? Yeah, I think you talk about such surreal experiences. And you know, let's just start with the, your professor telling you when you're in grad school, oh, by the way, I'm not really a professor. I'm actually here <laughs> to see if you know, people might be a good fit for the CIA. And we right. think you might be a good fit. Did that blow your mind? Oh, yeah, it did. I had no idea that things like that happened. No That's idea. Of the movies, right? I mean, I was perfectly <laughs> happy to you know consider one day – printing off the application or not even printing it off yet. Back then we didn't have really computers in our homes, at least not yet. So uh, you had to call a number. They would send you an application. You fill out the application with a pen and you send it all back in. But, you know, looking back on that period and thinking about how naive I was, the only reason that I so readily accepted his invitation was that I was going to get married in six weeks and mm. I, I just, I didn't have a job. I didn't even have any prospects for a job. I was finishing a, a master's degree in legislative affairs with a focus on uh, foreign policy analysis. And I thought, well, you know, I'll probably end up in a, in a minimum wage job on Capitol Hill. Maybe I'll take the foreign service exam. I'm not really sure what I'm going to do, but then all of a sudden I'm going to have this wife and, I need to find an apartment. I didn't own a car. I should probably like seriously look for a job. And then he just kind of threw this opportunity at me. And I thought, well, I'm not doing anything else. Sure. Why not? Do you think part of part of the fact that you didn't aspire your whole life to be in the CIA, did that have anything to do with why you were willing to stand up and what I think is do the right thing when you saw the chance versus somebody that like when you want it for 30, 40 years and then it happens, it's a right. little bit harder to give up. Oh, yeah, that's a very good point. And I think I think the answer is yes, in part. Um, but, you know, after after the whole whistleblowing experience was over, an Israeli uh, author and psychologist told me that in his studies of whistleblowers, he found that whistleblowers have an unusually highly defined sense of right and wrong, far more highly defined than the general uh, public. And that that may have been it. You know, I'm also very much a believer in the rule of law. And we know in our hearts when, when laws are just wrong, right? It was once legal for children to work in the mines, for example, right? Or segregation was legal. We know in our hearts that, that those laws were wrong. We're not stupid. And so, you know, every once in a while, something would pop up. I'll, I'll give you an example. I was the note taker once in a meeting with, uh, between the U.S. ambassador to Bahrain and the minister of foreign affairs. And um, the minister mentioned offhandedly that a previous ambassador had visited the country and had solicited a $50,000 campaign contribution to the Bob Dole campaign. Okay, well, that's illegal. You can't do that. And so, 
we got back in the car and the ambassador said, listen, that thing about the previous ambassador, don't put that in the cable. That's just, that's just going to be all kinds of trouble. And I thought about it and thought about it and thought about it. And I ended up sending, um, it was called a Roger channel cable. It's a, it's a, it's a communications channel between the state department and the CIA. And I sent it directly to the office of the general counsel. And I said, listen, I know that, that the law says if I'm aware of a crime, I have to report the crime or I'm guilty of being an accessory after the fact. I just want you to know the minister of foreign affairs said this about this former ambassador and, and they jumped on it and the Dole campaign gave the 50 grand back and, and the ambassador was fired from the campaign. He wasn't prosecuted, but it was the right thing to do. Well, after 9-11, forget it. Everything the CIA was doing was, was illegal, in addition to being immoral and, and unethical. And so I remember saying to a colleague at the time, you know, I really hate to think that on the day that, that I swore my oath, my first day at the CIA, you know, in, this, in the auditorium, in this crowd of 300 people, that I was the only one who actually meant it. <laughs> they, they make you put your hand in the air and swear to uphold and protect the Constitution of the United States against all enemies, foreign and domestic. Well, sometimes it's the government that's oh, violating uh, the Constitution. In, in my experience, John, it seems to be the majority of the time, at least in the last 50 to 60 years, has been domestic enemies. Absolutely <laughs> right. So. Absolutely. I mean, and, and if you don't stand up for the Constitution and the rule of law, then really what you're doing is you're you're ceding to chaos. Mm-hmm. And that's not yeah. the America I want to live in. Right. And so this, I think, leads into this next question that I want to ask. Uh, John, you and I have talked at length about your work on the agency and your life after the CIA. Uh, I think it would be good for our audience to hear what you think about RFK Jr.'s pledge for an American truth and reconciliation process. Uh, Specifically, he signed on to a a statement calling for truth and reconciliation regarding the political assassinations of the 1960s. But I think that we can connect that also to the torture program that you exposed in many, many other state crimes that the CIA has been implicated in. How do you see uh, this tr- potential truth and reconciliation process fitting into Kennedy's broader plans to reform U.S. intelligence. Uh, basically, he he's called for eliminating the dirty tricks department or at least separating from intelligence gathering and analysis. Uh, what are your thoughts about uh, how such a process could be used to uh, Im- Im- improve our system and to eliminate the criminality that we've basically institutionalized. I I think this was a very brave call. This was a very brave thing for him to say and something that is absolutely necessary in America right now. We've seen what truth and reconciliation commissions can do in other countries. Look at the success, for example, that South Africa has had. Um, Just as one example, you know, we, we may have had something similar to a Truth and Reconciliation uh, Commission in the, uh, the Church Committee and the Pike Committee in the mid-1970s, when so much was exposed in the way of CIA crimes, not just crimes against Americans, but international crimes as well. That began to dissipate with the nomination of... Um, of uh, Bill Casey as the CIA director in uh, in 1981, and then by 9/11 it just had fallen by the wayside. But I honestly can't think of something that we need more right now 
to address what the CIA has become, which frankly, let's just say it, it's a paramilitary uh, assassination and kidnapping force. I hate to say that, but that's really what it is. It's a paramilitary organization. This is the only way that we can turn that around and get back to, if if we're going to have a CIA, get back to what uh, Harry Truman and Congress originally intended for it to be. And I want to apologize to you guys. I, I misspoke when I called it American Exceptionalism, the podcast. There are two, two versions of the podcast where Aaron and John got to talk fascinating. And I'd encourage everyone to look up American Exception and listen to those two episodes where you two talk about the CIA. Um, Thank you. Really quick, John, just one last thing uh, we hope that you can comment on, uh, given your expertise on the Middle East. Uh, how do you think Biden uh, in general is doing in regard to that region? And B, how do you think the next U.S. president should approach U.S. policy, especially as it relates to Israel and Palestine, which is obviously a big deal right now? Well, I'm going to preface it by telling you something that, uh, that the emir of Kuwait uh, said to me one time. I went into Kuwait on Liberation Day with the Marines in uh, in 1991, and I was kind of a regular there until 1994. I was even invited to the defense minister's son's wedding. Um, oh, wow. But the emir of Kuwait once told me that the last president to give the Arabs a fair shake was George H.W. Bush. That was obvious. I mean, they were renaming major streets after George Bush. There was a spate of of baby boys that were born in, in 1991, all named uh, George, you know, George Al whatever. Um, <laughs> they loved him. But the the previous president that had given them a fair shake was, was uh, Dwight Eisenhower. Hmm. Uh, for obvious reasons. You, you look back to the Suez crisis, et cetera. Um, I think that most of our presidents make the same mistake when it comes to Israel. And that is the mistake of thinking that that Palestinian human rights are separate from a pro-Israel national policy. I, most Americans agree that Israel has a right to exist. I agree. Wonderful. We have a, an incredibly close relationship with, with Israel. It's a first world country. And it's not just, you know, on foreign policy and defense, you look at, you look at trade, you look at tech transfer, you name it, we're close. But that doesn't mean that we have to sit idly by while, is, while, while Palestinians are treated as, um, as less than Israelis. You know, the first time I ever went to the West Bank, I, I was aghast at the, the wall topped by barbed wire and surrounded by minefields that separated Israel proper from Palestine. I mean, I had heard about the wall. I'd never actually seen it with my eyes. Um, Palestinians aren't free to travel from one part of their own country to the other. I, I met a Palestinian doctor who, um, who told me that he was, raised, he was raised to believe that the way out of this was through education. And so he took his education very seriously. He won a scholarship to study medicine in France. Well, Palestinians aren't allowed to leave. You have to get the approval of the uh, Israeli Ministry of the Interior to leave the country. And so for seven consecutive years, he applied for an exit visa 
And for seven consecutive years, he was denied. Now, this French medical school was very kind to him in that they just extended the the invitation until finally in year eight, he was allowed to leave. And he went to France and became a doctor, finally returned to um, to Palestine and is a doctor there. Well, at least he was a doctor until October. I don't know where he is now. Um, my, my point being that, you know, George HW Bush was right to say, wait a minute, you can't keep stealing Palestinians land, burning their olive trees, confiscating their homes, and then putting recent immigrants from Brooklyn in them. That's not fair. It's not right. And we're going to withhold, um, economic aid until you stop expanding these these settlements. That was the right thing to do. Uh, Joe John, Biden if I can, John, if I can just interrupt for a second. Mm. I was just talking to Lawrence Wilkerson, and he said that he believed that the reason Bush lost in '92 was because of what how he stood up to Israel. Oh, I think and that's I find right. that quite plausible when you consider that he he won quote unquote the Cold War and he won the Gulf War. Uh, and at the time, he should have been flying high. I mean, incumbents have usually easy path to reelection. Totally agree. I think Larry's. 100% spot on with that analysis. Yeah. I mean, it wasn't like Clinton was running partic- a particularly more liberal campaign. He was basically campaigning on being slightly more conservative. That's <laughs> right. HW. That's what the so, Democratic Leadership Council was all about. Yep. Yeah, yep. Yeah. So the, the so called right. tack to the center. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Mm-hmm. But it's, so getting back to the other part of, of Nico's question uh, after that uh, aside there, um, what, what would you recommend for the next American president uh, who is going to have to be dealing with a very volatile situation? I think my answer is going to be generally unpopular. Um, you know, Having been to Israel a number of times, having worked on the Middle East or in the Middle East for most of my adult life, the only solution is the two-state solution. Now, ask anybody involved, and they will say the two-state solution is dead. It's just not going to happen. But it's the only thing that'll work. Look at a map of Bosnia. And we mentioned before we started recording a, a sponge looking like it has it's full of holes. That's what the map of Bosnia looks like, right? Because there are communities of Croats and communities of Serbs and all different kinds of people. And now they all live in peace. That's what Israel and Palestine are going to have to look at. It look like eventually, uh, people are going to have to live together, but you know, in their own communities, their own self-governing communities. Like, do the Israelis will really want to administer Gaza? Like, really seriously? No. And Gazans don't want to be administered by the Israelis or by the Palestinian Authority. Yeah, it's true. So they're going to have to they're going to have to figure something out. I had a guest on my own show the other day when I asked him about the Palestinian Authority and he said, "Oh, of course, you're talking about Mahmoud Abbas, who's 18 years into a four-year term. People don't want to be represented by dictators, even dictators who are the same kind of people that they are." Mm-hmm. So I, those, those I think the two-state solution the is the only way to go. And and there has to be some sort of a free Palestine. Now, I can tell you that at the CIA, uh, I, I had a boss who was on loan to the White House. And in the final days of the of the uh, Clinton administration, he was one of the negotiators at Camp David, along with uh, with Yasser Arafat and uh, and uh, Yitzhak Rabin and a couple of other uh, Israeli senior Israeli leaders. And he said it got to the point where they were literally huddled around 
a map of Jerusalem and they were dividing Jerusalem block by block with a Sharpie. And he said, when they finally came up with what they believed was, you know, the final look of what these two countries were going to be, he said, they stepped back and Al Gore said, my God, we have peace. And then Arafat said, I'll never be able to sell this to the Palestinian people. And he walked out and Al Gore ran out after him and said, wait a minute, you can't just walk out after all this work. If you don't like it, then give us a proposal, something that we can continue working on. And he said, the Palestinians will never approve of a divided Jerusalem. And that was the end of it. That's as close as they came, which is pretty darn close. Well, I think after all these years, and we're talking about January of of 2000, here we are 24 years later, I think maybe attitudes will have changed by now. And it's time to revisit those talks. Well said. Well, John, we really do appreciate you being on here today. We we thank you for all you've done. I think people who are interested in Robert F. Kennedy Jr. are people who are, I'd say maybe from, from childhood, from upbringing, committed to you just do the right thing, whether it benefits you personally or that not, even if it does hurt you personally. And um and we just we see that lived out in your life and we appreciate it. And I well, do thank wanna... you for the for the great work that you're doing. And thank you so much for the the honor of being on here with you. I appreciate it very much. No thanks problem. For, thanks for joining, John. I appreciate you. Thank, thank you. you. And we do encourage and invite our listeners to like and subscribe to this podcast and go to the Kennedy Beacon Substack. There you can find excellent articles and columns written by the Beacon reporters and authors. And we hope you will join us next week for another episode of the Kennedy Beacon Podcast.